Hello and welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. Couldn't be better. Wonderful. This week, we're starting a new series of the podcast, courtesy of my client, friend, and fellow coach, Fiakra McSweeney. And Fiakra suggested that we do a podcast on substances and the reason i say substances is because what he wanted us to discuss were things like the science of supplements you know what 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 supplements to take maybe how different supplements work maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the supplements that might fit in like the medical category later on in the series and that's why i'm just kind of saying substances so throughout this series of the podcast what we'll do is we'll move from the the general and the basic to some of the more specific and advanced topics. So in this episode, what we'll do is we'll discuss general health supplements. So this is an introduction to some of the supplements that, you know, your grandmother might be taking or your uncle at the dinner party might be asking about, should I take this supplement? We'll cover some of the basics on that today. And then in subsequent weeks, what we'll do is we'll get into more than nitty gritty on specific goals. For example, what, what supplements might actually improve your muscle growth or what supplements might, you know, help with your blood pressure and those types of things. But for today, general health supplements is where we're starting. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that most people, they, first of all, they think, Oh, like the general health supplements or the general supplements, the stuff that the every average day person knows. I don't need to talk about them. I don't need to focus on them. It seems like the, thing that gets rewarded on like social media and YouTube and whatever else is let's talk about the most esoteric random supplement, which has like really poor evidence supporting it. Isn't really, you know, backed by much at all other than like marketing hype. That's the, that's the substance. That's the, the supplement. That's the drug. That's the, whatever that we need to be talking about. Not the stuff that, you know, generally works and has been well-researched. You know, and it's weird the way that that's the kind of way the industry has chosen to gone and chosen to go. And also the way that people interact with media in general, you know, it's like, oh, I need the secrets. And if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know, we're not about that life. We're not about the, oh, here's the, here's the one weird trick that you need to, you know, do to, I don't know, fucking whatever the goal is, you know, it's like, that's that's generally not the stuff that works. And then also there is a bit of a hierarchy we'll say with all of this stuff, right. In terms of you probably shouldn't really be looking at supplements or substances. Well, I should maybe not say substances because some people need them for like medical reasons. Um, But you generally shouldn't be looking at supplements at least unless you already have your general health stuff looked after. And what I mean by that is like we often talk about the four pillars, you know, and there is a conditional fifth one, but it's not really the realm that we speak in, but there is, you know, sleep. Are you sleeping enough? Is it high quality sleep? Are you doing all the things that you need to do to get good sleep? You know, like you can take all the fucking drugs in the world and they probably don't compare to the effects that sleep has because sleep is just so it has its tentacles in everything right? Stress management. That's another pillar, right? Are you doing any kind of stress management? No, you're not. Well, taking a supplement to lower your stress is not going to (laughs) work. You know, taking a supplement to build muscle when you're super highly stressed, missing workouts, etc. Again, not going to work, 
<laughs> right? Uh, so we need to have stress management in place. Then we need, also need to have training. So our exercise habits, like again, you can take a muscle building supplement, but if you have the shittest workouts, your training program is really poorly designed. It's not effective. You're also not consistent with it, et cetera, et cetera. The supplement's not going to do anything, you know? It's just going to burn money, right? Um, and then obviously nutrition. When we're talking about supplements, the thing that most people really should be focusing on first and foremost is their nutrition. And we're going to repeat that a variety of times throughout this podcast, both this episode and the series in general, because if you could get your diet in a really good place, you probably don't really need a huge much or huge amount extra in the terms of supplements, right? So we have to keep that priority or that hierarchy in mind in terms of, okay, we need to have our diet or our nutrition in general, our training, our sleep, our stress management practices. We want to get them dialed in. Now, supplements can definitely help with that. And I'm not saying that you have to be absolutely perfect with all four of those things, but we have to have the basic things. We have to have the basics. You know, you have to have a sleep and wake time. You know, you have to be able to go, oh, okay, there's eight hours of sleep. You have to be practicing some sort of stress management, even if it's just organizing your day, right? Um, you have to have effective training programs or training plans. And then you also have to have some grasp and some hold on nutrition, some good, healthy food habits before you start spending your money on any of these other things, right? That's the priority list. Would you agree with that, Gary? I would indeed agree with that. And personally, I'd say I'm very much a, a supplement minimalist in the sense that, like, yeah, of course, I've tried plenty of supplements over time, but I'm really not one of those people that's wake up every morning, you know, opening up 10 supplement bottles and taking them and hoping for the best. Um, most of my nutrition comes via my diet. And even when it comes to taking something like a multivitamin, which is where we start, most of the time, I'm not really taking a multivitamin. And not that I, I, I think it's like a, almost like a philosophical point more than anything else. I'm just, I just don't feel I need the insurance. Maybe I do. Um, but that's kind of my perspective. And that's something that's actually really important as an introduction, introduction to this conversation is that when you start to think about whether or not you should take a supplement, there actually is like a, a general philosophy that goes into making that decision in that some people might want to be health optimists in every domain and they'll they're willing to take um, or to accept more trade-offs for example in their finances so if i say to them that x supplement might produce a very very small benefit in some areas of health for some people but we have no idea of knowing if you're that person and if you'll ever benefit they'll say yeah absolutely i'll take the supplement no problem if there's any chance of me benefiting i'll take it and oh, i'm definitely more on that yeah you know, i like to like research things a bit more than just go like oh well yes yeah, yeah. there's the, the zero zero five percent chance maybe it might work I'm like i'm probably not that far down the rabbit hole you know but i definitely err on the side of oh this is going to give me a small improvement let's get those improvements where i can you know or this potentially might lead to i don't know a lower incidence of heart disease in the future Okay, cool. You know, like I've said it before, I'm like, my goal is to live to 120 at least, <laughs> you know, like your goal is to live to at least 80. Uh, yeah. So I'm like, there, there is a difference in our overall philosophy in terms of how we interact with this stuff. And like you said, that's important to consider off the bat. 100%. And that's, that's actually my point is that 
I'm not saying there's a right or wrong here because there's not, you know, it's, it's genuinely a question of like your, your personal philosophy and health and your personal philosophy in life. You know, you, not everyone has to want to maximize longevity and sacrifice many other things along the way in order to pursue them. It's totally okay to make different decisions. And that's actually, it might seem like a, a, a point that's kind of irrelevant or tangential, but it's actually the first consideration when it comes to making any supplement decision. Because a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today and in the series in general, we'll be saying things like, this might benefit you, we don't really have great evidence, but some people might be willing to, to say, okay, there's not great evidence, but I'm willing to make the leap and say, this might help. You know, if I was a, a professional athlete, and that was my like my entire focus was just on performing my absolute best. I'd be willing to make a lot more sacrifices in terms of investing money in supplements, investing time in different speculative recovery methods, etc., than I would be with my current life. Okay. So that again is a personal decision, and it's totally okay to not be like 100 percent evidence-based. You don't have to just wait until there's 10 randomized control trials in your specific population before you take a supplement it's a personal decision at the end of the day so that's where we start yeah and also the next point and it's related to this is that you have to look at all of these things as like a cost benefit analysis because you might think oh there's no harm in taking a multivitamin because we're going to talk about multivitamins in a second right there's no harm in taking a multivitamin right but that's not actually the case there is potentially harm in everything we do, every choice we make. There, there are potential cons to that. There is potential harm that you could get from that. It's not a like only positive or only potentially positive uh, scenario. You know, there are potential negatives here. You know, for a variety of supplements, for a variety of things. Uh, again, it depends on the specifics, but you have to look at every single intervention you do as having pros and cons you know and this is especially important for coaches because we often get go down the rabbit hole of thinking like oh i'm just going to make a dietary change and you only see the pros the only positives of that dietary change you're like oh i'm going to get this person to eat more protein that's only going to have a positive effect on their life their health their performance etc but there are potential negatives to that intervention you know and it could be just a cost thing it could just be financial you know all meat is a bit more expensive you know but it could also be uh, health ramification, like they might have an undiagnosed kidney disease, for example, you know, and then all of a sudden you ramp up protein intake and that becomes more apparent, you know, now obviously that's quite rare, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying that like all of our interventions, whatever we do, it's not just a zero to positive, you know, it's a, this could be negative. It could be positive. It depends on the situation, right? So you have to accept that while there are potential positives, there's also potential negatives, especially in this day and age where, you know, you can just go online and go, oh, I saw on TikTok that all the kids are taking X supplement and then you just buy it from some fucking dodgy, you know, Chinese website, get it shipped over, it took six weeks to get here. Like You don't know what you're taking. You have absolutely no idea what you're taking in that case, you know, and you see this all the time where like pe people taking like free workouts that they're like, oh, I got this. Like in Europe, people be like, oh, I got this in like Eastern Europe in the Balkans somewhere. And it's like, right, like what the fuck is in this? You don't like, you know, <laughs> this is so unregulated. Like you don't, you don't even know, you know, and it might be fine. Might have no health ill effects, but you might also be the one that dies from taking that supplement, <laughs> you know, like 
we just don't know right um so that is important to understand and again it goes back to your personal philosophy you might be like oh yeah i'm willing to take more supplements or do more things in the hope that there is a small advantage but that has to be weighed against the fact that there's also potentially a negative with these things you know and again it could just be financial and you might be okay you'd be like oh that's fine i don't care about that as much right but it could also have health ramifications you know absolutely and that's particularly the case for you know if people are on other medications or they have certain health conditions there can be interactions between supplements and drugs that can be consequential in some cases so that's why when you you know read an article on supplements or you hear people talk about it on podcasts they always give the disclaimer you know don't make any changes before you speak to your doctor etc consult your doctor about this before you it, it is for a genuine reason and of course the cases where it's going to be very significant are few and far between, but of course, if it can be quite significant in some cases. So anyway, with all that said, all of our caveats out of the way, we will come back to some of those points, but let's start by talking a little bit about multivitamin supplementation. And I guess you could say multivitamin, multivitamin, or multinutrient. That tends to be the case with a lot of multivitamin supplements these days. As you look down through the ingredient profile, yeah, you'll see some vitamins, but then you'll see quite a lot of minerals. You'll see you know, increasingly more phytonutrients, bioactive compounds, um, and other things that are often in very small doses. And sometimes when people begin to approach these supplements, they see the big long list and they're like, oh, this is amazing. There's so much of everything in here. One of the big problems with that is that the more you try to squeeze in, the less, the less likely it is that there's going to be an adequate dose of any one particular ingredient. And that can sometimes be marketed in, in a in a deceptive manner. It might say this this multivitamin has um, more minerals, more vitamins, and more um, nutrients than any other on the market. But it's kind of irrelevant if there's not an adequate dose of any of those, because you could just have one percent of the RDA of a hundred different nutrients, and well, that's not really going to do anything for you, is it? So that's kind of the first point on multivitamins is that. You're, you have to ask yourself, when you approach a multivitamin supplement, am I taking this supplement with the intent of maybe covering a couple of bases that are likely for me to be deficient or insufficient in, given my diet as a whole? Or am I taking this like huge shotgun approach where I just throw in all these nutrients and hope that something happens? Because they're actually two very different approaches. Because you might have a multivitamin that has, let's say, um, quite a lot of vitamin B12 and magnesium and iron let's just say those three and those three happen to be closer to being insufficient in the over 65s for example or in the irish population generally then that's actually a reasonable approach to a multivitamin supplementation whereas if you're someone who already has a great diet and now you're spending 60 euros a month on this shotgun approach to multivitamin you're probably less likely to be a benefit there so even though multivitamin is kind of one category of supplements there are many different types within that and many different reasons why someone might approach a multivitamin supplementation. Yeah. And just related to that is the fact that you will often see as well on multivitamin labels, they'll be like a thousand percent of the RDA you yeah. know, or like 200% of your RDA, you know, your recommended daily allowance. That's what RDA stands for. Right. Um, and again, it comes back to your philosophy of like, why are you taking this? What are you trying to do with this? 
like what what is the actual goal with this supplement right and with a multivitamin again like you're saying it can be effectively two things here it can be a variety of things but we'll just keep it dichotomous here you can be like i just want to have nutritional insurance i just want to go i think my diet is relatively good you know i follow the triage boys i'm eating my vegetables i'm doing everything i think i'm doing everything right but you never know there could be one or two nutrients in my diet that i'm a little bit lacking on you know like i just buy my food from I don't know, let's say Tesco or whatever, right? You're like, I don't know what quality the food is. I, I think it's quite good. But, you know, I'm like, I don't know what the quality of the food is. Could be nutrient poor. Who knows, right? I'm not testing the food. I don't have the, the expertise to do that. This, I don't know, broccoli that I get, it says generally 100 grams of broccoli has X amount of vitamin C. But I don't know if this one does. You know, I don't know if my specific diet actually has all the nutrients that I need, you know? And maybe there's a few nutrients in there that, I just, I don't know where to get them in the diet. Like for example, selenium, you're like, where, like, where do I get that? You know, am I eating enough selenium, right? So you're just going, I want to take a multivitamin to just give me a small amount of these different nutrients to make sure that I'm getting some of the nutrient. I'm not trying to get 100% of my RDA. My diet is already good, you know? So you would then select a multivitamin that just had a lower dose, you know, you might actually want to go for a multivitamin, multimineral, whatever, that has way more ingredients on it, but they're all in a lower dose, right? However, again, like I said, you could also be using a multivitamin for, oh, well, there's a few things that I know I actually really struggle with in the diet, or I know that the population that I fall into in general struggles with whatever it is, then you might go for a higher dose you know, multivitamin that has like maybe again, like a prenatal multivitamin. You're like, oh, you know, I'm intending to get pregnant or whatever, right? I'm like, these are the nutrients that we need to make sure we're getting enough of in the diet. This is the one that I'm going to go for, you know? So again, we have to be clear in what we're doing. But related to that is the fact that very often a lot of these multivitamins will just have stuff in it that's not actually helpful at all. You know, like you could go into there and go into that first approach. I'd be more inclined to that first approach. I'm like, I take a multivitamin. I take, you know, a lower dose multivitamin that has more in it. Because I'm like, I think my diet's generally quite good, but you never know, right? Um, So that's what I choose. However, I could choose using that approach. I could choose a multivitamin that now has a load of extra like random you know, we'll call them bioactives or uh, plant compounds or whatever that aren't really in high enough doses to do anything. So really all they're doing is adding to the cost of the product, but not actually giving me any benefit because they're in such, such low dose, right? So we have to be aware of that. And then also, and this is a much harder thing if you're just a more, casual nutrition health fitness enthusiast which is there's certain nutrients that we don't want to mega dose or we don't want to have super high intakes of but very often multivitamins do actually have quite high doses of those things again i've said prenatal uh, multivitamin there a second ago so we might say oh well uh pregnancy multivitamin with super high levels of vitamin a for example that wouldn't be ideal. It's stratogenic. So, you know, you could potentially get birth defects from that, right? So we wouldn't want to choose that. If you're a man, for example, you might go, 
oh, this is a good multivitamin. But then you see on the label, it's like, I don't know, 50% of your iron intake <laughs> in this. And that potentially is harmful for you as a man because you're not bleeding often. You know, you're you're potentially at a higher risk for just accumulating excess amounts of iron. And maybe you already have a super high red meat intake as well. So it's not really of benefit for you, you know? So we have to be very clear in terms of why we're doing this. We actually have to ha educate ourselves a little bit in terms of what we're looking for on the label, you know, related back to our goals. Like, are we trying to, you know, pick one or two nutrient deficiencies <clears throat> or insufficiencies and fix those? And then we also have to go, do I need to take a multivitamin or should I just take those single nutrients themselves? You know, like if you're, going oh well actually it's vitamin d which we'll talk about later on in the podcast you might be like oh it's vitamin d that i'm insufficient in that i know i'm insufficient in maybe i've got a blood test that shows that or maybe you're just like look i never go outside i haven't seen the sun in 50 years right <laughs> you know you're like okay so vitamin d is something that you want to focus on using a multivitamin to get your vitamin d intake probably isn't going to be the best way to go about that so again we have to look at it and go are we trying to fix a single nutrient insufficiency or just shore up the diet on a single or maybe two or three nutrients? Or are we trying to use some sort of like nutritional insurance by using a multivitamin, you know? And I think that's the general, I think that's probably the general approach would be that insurance is probably the reason that most people would take a multivitamin. And I think that's pretty, pretty wise. Um, but Again, if you're going to go for those more targeted approaches, it might just be better to just go go for the single ingredient itself that you've identified identified to be insufficient or deficient. So I don't have too much else to say really on the topic of multivitamins. I think that when it comes to whether or not you should take a multivitamin, I think it's a personal choice in that it's probably more of an insurance policy. It's not the case that we have great evidence to support multivitamin use for like any particular outcome and you kind of wouldn't expect that either because it's like if you were gonna if you were trying to correct a deficiency you just use the single nutrient and then you'd see that outcome uh, whereas if you just apply multivitamin in general to the population you're not gonna you're not gonna see the same effects so i think it's not like i would turn around and say everyone should take a multivitamin i would say that if you want to apply general health insurance uh, it might be wise, particularly if you notice that you have lapses in your diet quality or you're in a population that might benefit more from multivitamin supplementation. So like pregnancy, for example, you can get a specific uh, pregnancy uh, multivitamin, mainly concerned with folic acid, but with some other nutrients as well. Um, or maybe you're an elderly population, you have certain um gastrointestinal disease that might put you at risk of certain deficiencies or you might be on med medications that lead to certain deficiencies all those things can obviously be discussed at your doctor in specific cases but for most people it's just going to be a general insurance policy i think yeah and look again like we could spend ages here going well this is higher quality or this specific form of you know oh should you get a tetramethylfolate or tetramethyl i can't even fucking say the word hydrofolate um should you go for that um or should you go for folic acid like there's so many things that you could potentially focus on within this but again it's probably not worth your time you know it's probably not worth your time 
to spend, you know, five hours looking into this stuff when you could just eat a better diet, you know, and then get one of the more generic uh, multivitamins. I would generally still try to focus on getting multivitamins that are third party tested. You know, that would be our general recommendation with all health supplements. And I probably wouldn't, you know, prioritize getting a multivitamin just that's like a, a store brand one, you know, like I'm sure they're fine, but they're probably not spending as much time on formulation and thinking about what the more optimal doses are, what the more optimal nutrients to have in this, like your, again, your Tesco or your little store home brand one is probably not as heavily invested in, in terms of an intellectual perspective as I don't know, a company that all they sell as a multivitamin, you know? So again, we have to weigh that up, but again, there's pros and cons, cost, ease of access, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So Gary, that's the multivitamin. What else then? Right. Well, actually, before we do that, general pop coming to us, they listen to us, listen to this podcast, yay or nay on multivitamin. If you have disposable income, you're very concerned about your health and you think that there might be some lapses in your diet and you want to cover all your bases, I'd give it a yay. If not, meh. Yeah, I would agree with that. And again, this is also one of those things where you actually don't have to take a multivitamin every single day. You could just take it a, a couple of times per week and just go, cool. I know at least a few times per week, I'm getting a nice dose of nutrients. You know, maybe you take it on the days where your diet quality is a little bit poor, whatever, right? Again, there's multiple ways that we can go about this. You don't have to take it every single day, right? After that, Gary, next supplement, what are we looking at? The next one is a very popular one, and that would be omega-3 supplementation, most often used synonymously with fish oil supplementation, but not always. And omega-3s are long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, EPA and DHA being those that we're concerned with. And these supplements are purported to have many different benefits that people will talk about. Some of those most frequently discussed would be related to cardiovascular disease. Um, and then also, you know, cognitive health is another common area that people talk about omega-3s. You'll see all, all sorts of different claims about their potential benefits. And that's always going to be the case when you have specific nutrients that act in many different parts of the body. But the question is not, does a given nutrient have a, a potential effect in a given area of the body, but do we actually have evidence that supplementing with additional quantities is going to lead to better outcomes for that particular system, for example, the cardiovascular system. And in this case, we have you know evidence that would be in favor of that, but there's sometimes back and forth results you know does it reduce cardiovascular disease doesn't it reduce cardiovascular disease or disease risk probably quite a bit of variance in terms of how much is actually used like for example there have been trials reducing cardiovascular risk in like clinical applications of uh, omega-3 supplementation where it's it's pharmacy grade there's very high uh, potency very high um, doses and if you compare that then to like the average omega-3 supplementation that you're going to get in, I don't know, Boots or Tesco, you're not going to see the same outcomes. So you will see mixed outcomes here, but in general, the 
reason people often supplement is to do with cardiovascular disease risk. One of the mechanisms that's um, of relevance is a reduction in triglyceride levels. There are some other effects on the vasculature, reductions in blood pressure. And overall, you know, I would say omega-3s in the diet, probably cardioprotective. But omega-3s in the diet and omega-3s supplemented aren't always exactly the same. And that then brings us to the question of who should supplement, how much do we need, et cetera. So where do we start with that? Plan? Yeah, well, in, in general with this, like you said, there's back and forth. You can pretty much use the research to uh, confirm, we'll say, whatever bias you have. You go, oh, there's absolutely no benefit to omega-3s or, oh, there's a benefit to omega-3s but there's no benefit to supplemental omega-3s. And you can also go, oh, there is actually a dose-dependent benefit to omega-3s, supplemental, dietary, et cetera, right? So to cover all your bases, right? If you're going to this going like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to read research. I don't know what the fuck to do. I just want some practical take-homes, right? It's probably a good idea to include fish in your diet. I don't think anyone, even the most ardent anti-omega-3 <laughs> uh, dieters are going to say oh fish is actually bad right most people are going to say yeah fish is probably a good thing to have in your diet right so you want to include fish in your diet ideally we're probably going to focus on oily cold water fish that's probably going to be the best way for you to get your omega-3s but i'd be pretty happy if you included fish in your diet in some form or other right now that's the the general background ideally some fish in the diet how much that is the question. Probably more than most people are willing to eat. <laughs> that's the that's the the short answer, right? Like I personally really enjoy fish. Like I could, I think I could be a pescatarian, right? Like I I really enjoy fish. However, it's just a little bit less practical to cook fish every single day, right? You know, it's like it's not as easy to cook as say like beef mince or a steak or chicken breast or whatever, right? Um, so. From a practical perspective, most people are not cooking fish every single day, eating fish every single day. And then we also have children like Gary who are like, oh, the taste of fish is, uh, it's not nice, right? I'm, I'm just being hyperbolic here, but a lot of people just don't like the taste of fish, right? So they're unwilling or unable, whatever, maybe don't have access, again, cost, etc. They don't have access to fish, right? They're not able to get that into the diet. In that case, we're probably going to suggest that person consume more supplemental omega-3s right fish oil that's the general one that we recommend there are other ones algal oils if you are you know a vegetarian or a predominantly plant-based dieter so you can get it you can get omega-3 in in supplemental form right if we're eating fish the general recommendations are to eat fish twice per week right two to three times per week that's generally what people say Oh, if you eat oily fish two to three times per week, you'll be able to get enough omega-3s, right? And that is that is true. And this is comes to the next point, which is how much omega-3s do we actually need? Do we need to just eat a sufficient amount to, you know, cover the bare minimum? Because omega-3s, well, there are essential fatty acids of which there's, we can call them two branches here. There's some that are omega-6s arachidonic acid is the the one that's often touted there are other ones potentially that are essential now that's really easy to get in the diet so even though it's essential we don't need to think about it right it's just it just happens by accident if you eat a normal human diet 
you're going to get enough omega-6s, you're going to get enough arachidonic acid, right? However, the other one, omega-3s here, now it's often said to be, uh, I always get these mixed up, is it ALA or yeah, ALA, alpha-linolenic acid, um, which is the omega-3 version of, was well, actually linoleic acid is the one, not arachidonic acid, but again, this is just pedantics. Um, so you want to focus on the omega-3 branch. We can go to that ALA, EPA, DHA, of which the EPA and DHA seem to be the actual ones that we need rather than the ALA. But anyway, that's just going into unnecessary detail here. Either way, they are essential fatty acids, so we need to consume them in the diet. Our body can't make them, so you need to consume them. So eating fatty fish two to three times per week, that's probably going to cover your essential fatty acid needs for the week. This brings us to the next point, which is, are we just trying to cover our bases, cover the bare necessities, or are we trying to optimize things, right? Because there does seem to be a dose-dependent result from omega-3. I'm, I'm saying result because it seems to be a dose-dependent result for cardiovascular disease, for cognitive benefits, et cetera. So all the things that we say, oh, omega-3s are good for, it seems that higher doses seem to be better, right? Um, up to a point, obviously, right? Now, what are we trying to do with this? Are we trying to cover our bases? If you're just trying to cover your bases, eat fish two to three times per week. Happy days. Don't even think about it, right? You're done. No need to supplement. If you're not able to eat fish, then you're going to need to supplement to just cover your bases. If you are someone who eats fish, but wants to really get an extra benefit, maybe you have you know, a higher risk of cardiovascular disease in your family, right? Or you've gone to your doctor, you've got bloods done, you're like, oh, my triglycerides are actually a little bit high. For you, we might supplement. We might start bringing in some sort of omega-3 supplement. Now, how much per day? That's going to be dependent on your background fish intake, right? But the research seems to suggest that somewhere in the range of two to five grams of EPA and DHA per day seems to be robustly associated with benefits, right? Now, you probably don't get that much if you're eating fish two to three times per week. Like 100 grams of fish, let's say 100 grams of salmon has roughly one gram of, well, 1.2 would say, 1.2 grams of omega-3s, right? In forms of EPA and DHA, right? So let's say, oh, we want to get five grams of EPA and DHA per day. Are you eating like 400 grams of salmon per day? Probably not, <laughs> right? Most people are not doing that, right? So you're probably going to need to supplement if you want to get to those higher ranges. Now, the thing about that is there's a variety of different supplements, different forms. Some of them are higher potency. Some of them have higher concentrations, et cetera. Like you go to your, again, Tesco or whatever, you might get a fish oil capsule and you go, oh, I just have to take five of these, that's not actually the case. Most of the fish oil capsules will have maybe 400 milligrams of EPA, DHA, right, combined. So you actually have to take, let's just say 10 of those capsules <laughs> to get an effective dose, get to those higher ranges of those doses. You know, like that's going to be four grams if you take 10, 400 milligram uh, capsules, right? Most people are also not <laughs> willing to just chug back 10 fish oil capsules per day 
add on 10 grams of fat to their diet, been doing that, and then get through the, the tub of fish oil capsules in like a week, <laughs> right? So we have to, again, think about this a little bit deeper in terms of what's practical, what's actually realistic, what can we do as individuals? Like, again, when we were talking about earlier on, I read our philosophy, like I personally, I'm like, yeah, actually, I really notice a benefit from taking fish oil. So I'm going to try, have a higher fish oil intake or omega-3 intake and so i'm i'm willing to go oh actually i'll spend a little bit more money per month on fish oil capsules right but someone else like i do eat fish salmon maybe once twice a week right so my background intake of fish oil is already relatively high compared to the baseline population but i'm still willing to do that but you may not be you may be like gary someone that just goes i just want to cover at least my bare minimum basis you know so what are your thoughts on all that, Gary? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think most people are probably not going to be getting anywhere near like, you know, three to five grams of combined EPA, DHA. Like, that's a huge ask. I think if, if I get between, you know, one to three grams, I'm pretty happy. You know, I've salmon a couple of times per week. And then when I remember, <laughs> I supplement with my omega 3s. That's the problem I always forget. Um, but yeah, like that's, I, I think, I think it is a solid addition. Um, I do think that if you get a high quality supplement, it's not too bad to take, you know, three capsules to get in that range of one to three grams per day, a uh, bit of fish, then a couple of times per week. And, you know, you're flying from there. I think that most people, when you look at the population evidence in, in Ireland, even, and we are an island we don't really get that much uh, seafood in our diet, like fish intakes for adults 18 to 64 come in around 25 grams per day. Uh, take that across the week, you're looking at you know just 200 to 250 grams um, or, or even less than that, got 150 grams, which you know isn't isn't necessarily a very big fish intake. So you might be you might end up then per week with somewhere around maybe 1.5 to 2.5 grams of uh, omega-3s across the week, uh, which isn't a, a very large intake. Now, with that said, you do see benefits of eating even that quantity of fish. If you're having one or two servings a week, it still is absolutely a benefit to your health. But I think if you want to take advantage of some of the demonstrated benefits of omega-3 supplementation in clinical research, you do need to be shooting a little bit higher with your intake. And I think starting with somewhere between one to three grams of combined EPA DHA is probably a, a decent starting point for most people. And it can be economical. Like one of the ways I would do this is I'll, you know, wait until there's some sort of sale on the very large bottles of uh, fish oils, like, you know, 180 or 100 or 360 capsules and it'll be, you know, buy one, get one half price. And I'll just do that. And that will, they'll be there for months and months and months and months. And just keep them in the fridge and you're all good. Yeah, that, and I just want to say on that, it is important to keep them in the fridge if you're going to be keeping them for months, because often people will go, oh, I'll just keep them in the cupboard or whatever. Like, it is an oil. It will go rancid, yeah. you know? And also, especially if it's exposed to heat, like, most of those fish oil capsules will just stick together. <laughs> you know, you spent whatever amount of money on this bucket of fish oil capsules, and now all of a sudden you've just got this fucking blob of fish oil capsules heated, melted together. Like, you're not going to take that. <laughs> Right. Um, so if you are going to have a bucket of them, you're going to you know, save some money, keep it in the fridge if possible, or at least at the very least in a cold, dark 
cupboard or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, look, I personally think there is a relatively clear benefit to omega-3s and supplementing with omega-3s is probably the most practical way to get enough in the diet, especially if we're trying to get to higher intakes. Let's say aim for two to five grams of EPA, DHA per day. Start at that two grams per day. That could be as little as four capsules, right? You know, it depends on the dose. Obviously, like I'm saying most of the, in the, you go to the shop, most of them are about 400 milligrams, right? You have to take four capsules of that per day, right? Ideally, eat some fatty fish. Eat fatty fish two, three times per week. You can just reduce your amount of fish oil capsules that you need to take, right? There we go. That's my recommendation. Again, some people might say, look, it's actually not really worthwhile getting omega-3s. I just eat enough true fish in the diet. Unfortunately, most people don't. So you're going to have to supplement with omega-3s if you want the benefits. And also, even if you don't want the benefits, you still need to supplement with omega-3s if you're not willing to eat fish because you still have essential fatty acid needs. So you're probably going to be in ill health, in deficiency, if you don't consume this. Like you don't get to just opt out of this one segment, <laughs> you know? Like, because people often do that. They just go, oh, I don't need to focus on that. I don't care about the cardiovascular benefits, etc. Whatever. Like you still have essential fatty acid needs, right? And there is, again, when we're saying earlier on about like pros and cons, you know, it's not like any of these are just like, completely positive interventions but that's also the case by not supplementing or not focusing on it in the diet like by not focusing on it that's not just automatically going to be positive there are negative effects of having a deficiency of omega-3s you just might not see it until you're 60 and having a cardiovascular event right so it's like yeah you might not feel anything right now but that doesn't mean that it's not affecting you by not having enough omega-3s you know, anyway, Gary, yeah, you're an A on the omega threes. I think that gets a, a mostly a yay from me. 100%. I would agree. Now, the next one vitamin D3. Gary, do you get enough D? I probably do get enough D. Um, I when I had my, my levels of vitamin D3 checked last time, um, or vitamin D checked last time, they were in a pretty good place in a not even insufficient in a a very a very good kind of optimal range now at the time i think i was occasionally supplementing with vitamin d but not very regularly so for that reason i don't supplement with it very regularly because you know why would i if you, if you have demonstrated if you have demonstrated that you have a solid intake from your diet then you don't need to be supplementing okay now with that said i think that if like get, getting a getting a blood test, getting your levels checked is a reasonable starting point here. Um prior to supplementation. But with that said, it's also the case that many, many people in the population, and here in Ireland is a great case example, are insufficient or deficient in vitamin D. And this does increase with age as well. And particularly given the role of vitamin D in uh, bone health uh, for the elderly populations it probably is wise to you know make a more general recommendation here and say yeah vitamin d supplementation probably a good idea um for me as i said i don't necessarily take it that regularly but if i got it rechecked and my levels had dropped then i would supplement with it a bit more 
bit more frequently then. Um, you can get a, a decent amount of the diet. And I think if you are eating a, a mixed diet and you're getting, you know, dairy products and animal products in your diet as well, then you're probably going to be fine from a vitamin D perspective. But if you're in Ireland and it's also very dark and you're not getting out very much, you know, you, you might require supplementation. So again, it's one of those, it depends answers, but I think I, I, I lean more in the direction of people taking vitamin D more regularly in this case. Uh, but with the caveat that if you can get a test to see where your levels are at, that's probably the best way of going about it. Yeah. Like best case scenario here, get a test, see where your levels are at and then supplement accordingly with the advice of your doctor slash dietitian. <laughs> I know most people are not going to do that though. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in that case, a more practical recommendation is right. You get the sun in the summer, you know, in Ireland, maybe you get two weeks of the sun, right. But we'll say at least you're getting some extra intake from the sun. You know, you're getting more sun exposure from let's say March, right. We'll give it a little bit earlier, right? You kind of spring into summer, right? So from March to September, October, right? Just get in, into the sun when you can, right? Maybe take some vitamin D once a week, right? Again, just background. You're just like, oh yeah, I, maybe this week was very overcast. I'm in the office all day. I drive to and from work. I'm in when it, I get in when it's dark and I come home and it's still dark, whatever, right? These things happen, right? You're like, I haven't seen the sun all week. Cool. Get some vitamin D into you right that's the the sunnier months right again obviously if you have a if you have a blood test that says you're deficient and you need more take more i'm not saying that this is always the case right during the summer sunnier months okay you can just have a very background if and when occasional need right take some during the winter months take more right you're like oh yeah i'm not going to get any from the sun so i'm just going to take a background dose of a, a thousand to two thousand i use right Take that every day, every second day, every third day. It doesn't really matter um, as long as you're relatively consistent with it, right? Like best case scenario, again, you get a blood test, you know exactly where your levels are, and then you could supplement accordingly. Again, I know most people are not going to do that. So the easiest way to ensure that the vast majority of the population are sufficient in vitamin D, because I think it's like 40% of the population are insufficient to deficient, right? So that's almost half. Okay. So if you're like, okay, half the people listening to this are potentially insufficient, right? And let's say on the other side of things, 80% of the people listening to this could still probably do with higher levels, right? It makes sense to just say, all right, during the winter months or the autumn to winter months, consume a thousand to 2000 IUs per day. Vitamin D is incredibly incredibly cheap like you can get like a tub that'll last you two years and it's like five pounds right so again really really cheap right so it makes sense to take some now there are potential populations where we would say mm, maybe don't take some maybe it shouldn't be the case that you take some but they are few and far between right they're much rarer than the 40% of the population that are potentially insufficient, right? So would you agree with that, Gary, that we just go at a baseline during the winter months or the autumn slash winter months, take some vitamin D during the summer slash spring months, if you remember, or it's been a particular cloudy or whatever week, take some. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, you know, it is a fat-soluble vitamin, so you can 
store it up and you know maintain it you don't have to supplement it every day in order for your levels to be adequate so it is a, a case of if you're if you have an identified insufficiency or deficiency you know take it for a period of time and retest if you think that you know you just like to cover your bases then winter is probably the best time to supplement then um there's many different doses available like some supplements are like 5000 to 10000 IUs which is fairly unnecessary like you don't need to be going that high and definitely not doing that like regularly unless you have a clear deficiency that you're trying to correct like 400 to 800 i use is i think typically what what people will recommend as like a, a longer term intervention but as you say if you're just trying to cover your bases in the winter when there might be um lower endogenous production a thousand to two thousand i use is probably reasonable like you're not it's it's hard to to give any sort of dose recommendation in the absence of knowing where someone's levels are at so what you're trying to do is just cover your basis here and uh, yeah i think you know taking a supplement every now and then in the winter is reasonable um and during the summer then yeah you probably don't require it as much there are apps as well that you can use to check when you're able to get vitamin d because uh, that will vary by by country by even where you are in the country the time of year etc and that'll give you an idea as to whether or not the sun at that point in time is adequate to give you endogenous vitamin D production. I think that app is called D Minder, as in like yeah, I think that might be. It. I think that's the one. Anyway, I don't, I don't personally use it. Um, but yeah, look, I think that's where we stand on that vitamin D. I'm probably again, I'm, I'm me and Gary have slightly different philosophies around this. I'm like, there's probably a benefit to staying on the relatively higher end of vitamin D levels rather than letting them get low at some stages throughout the year. Whereas Gary's a little bit more willing to go, look, I've had blood tests before that have said my vitamin D levels are in a good place without focusing too much on this. I'm going to have to, or I I can effectively assume that that's going to continue to be the case, you know, so you can go, oh, I'm not going to focus on this. Right. So if you're in the same position as Gary, you've had blood tests to go, yeah, look, I'm good. Again, just keep doing what you're doing. You don't need to change too much. Right. Whereas if you want to potentially get extra benefit or optimize things, having a background dose of vitamin D probably makes sense. But again, ideally here, we would have blood tests, right? Like I know I've literally got blood tests before and I've been consuming like 2,000, even 5,000 I use, and I'm still only in the middle of the range, you know? So it's like, okay, so for me, I know even when I'm consuming the highest doses that I could consume, I'm still not in like the upper echelons of the ranges here, right? So I know what works for me as a result of that. If you're coming to this, and again, you haven't got a blood test, you don't know anything about where your levels are at, a really practical, relatively risk-free way to go about this is I'm just going to supplement a low dose. And we'll say that just a thousand I use, you know, which, you know, if you look at the recommended daily allowances and you look at all the different stuff out there you might go oh thousand i use that's way more than the recommended daily allowance or the minimum dose but again that's the dose to to prevent deficiency rank deficiency (laughs) right we're talking about oh we're only really doing this during the colder winter or sorry i should say the darker winter months you know so you're effectively evening that out across the year you know if you're taking a thousand i use for six months that's effectively like taking taking 500 IUs 
for 12 months, right? So again, we're just evening it out across the year. So that's where we fall on that. So again, yay or nay, vitamin D. Yeah, I think vitamin D gets a yay. I just want to add one more caveat, and that's that vitamin D is also one of those um, nutrients slash supplements slash hormones that you'll see a lot of controversy about all the time. You know, you saw this throughout COVID where people were identifying vitamin D as being a major risk factor for, you know, COVID mortality and all this sort of stuff. But, and then people saying as a result of that, oh, we should get everyone supplement with vitamin D and that would be, you know, better than the vaccine or better than other medications or whatever. Look, wait, just before we go on to that, we can make a mechanistic hypothesis for this because vitamin D does seem to be immunomodulatory, right? So it modulates your immune system. It enhances, we'll put that in brackets, your immune system. So we go, oh, everyone needs to have higher levels. Mechanistically, makes sense. Yeah, and vitamin D does without a doubt play an important role in the immune system. I'm absolutely not denying that. But the important thing is that sometimes nutrients can be decreased in a state of illness. So what you end up seeing is that if I get sick and I'm sick for a while, my vitamin D levels might now be lower. Then if you come and you study me in the hospital and you measure my vitamin D levels and I'm more sick than you, Patty, you have higher vitamin D levels. I have lower vitamin D levels. You're not sick. I'm sick. You can conclude from that then and you can come out of that and say, okay, Gary's way more sick than Patty because he has low vitamin D levels. But in fact, what's happened is I got sick, that decreased my vitamin D levels. So it's actually the other way around. Now, that's not to say there's not any causal role of, of vitamin D in illness. Even further to that, there's also this like healthy user bias type yeah. thing where like, oh, I get out, I'm really healthy. I go for jogs out in the sun. You know, I'm out there jogging by or jogging through nature. I'm getting some sun exposure, getting my vitamin D levels up. I'm really fit person, et cetera, et cetera versus the person that's in an office that doesn't get enough vitamin D, doesn't exercise, doesn't whatever. So it's not the vitamin D level that was potentially protective. It was the fact that one of these people is just healthier than the other. And as a byproduct of that, their vitamin D levels were higher because they're getting out into nature and doing whatever, you know? Yeah, so the reason for raising that really is just to, I guess, be wary, not just with vitamin D, but with all of these nutrients and supplements is that sometimes the reasons justified or the reasons used to justify supplementation can be a bit misinterpreted. And it can seem like supplements are like wonder drugs, when in fact, they're they're not really. And the, the, the thing you will see throughout this episode and throughout this series is that a lot of the time we're just trying to cover our bases and hope for a benefit. You know, these aren't powerful drugs. So anyway, with that said, let's move on to magnesium. Magnesium is the next one, Gary. So I would probably be more on the side of people should take magnesium than on the side of, oh, it's fine. Just get it from your diet. Ideally, our magnesium intake, we're probably going to get enough from eating green leafy vegetables. That's where we get it from the majority in our diet. You do get some from water. For example, if you live in like a harder water area, like I live in London, so the water is harder, probably has a higher magnesium content than a soft water area. I think that's right. Can't really remember the exact proportions, but I think again, hard water, more magnesium, right? Either way, right? The vast majority of the magnesium you get from the diet is coming from green leafy vegetables. Now, unfortunately, 
most people don't eat enough vegetables, <laughs> right? So we have a situation where as a result of that, most people don't eat enough magnesium, right? And magnesium can, like magnesium is involved in so many reactions because it's actually what ATP is bound to in the body, in the, in the body, in the body, right? So ATP, you know, is the energy currency of the cell. So everything that requires energy in the body, any enzymatic reaction that requires ATP probably also requires magnesium to be there, right? So we need to have magnesium in, in the diet if we want to have good energy levels from the start, right? Well, magnesium or higher magnesium intakes or levels, I should say, generally seem to be, uh, or generally seem to improve sleep quality, generally seem to improve dif different um, muscular issues such as like restless leg syndrome, right? Um, cramping also seems to be a benefit from magnesium intake. Um, muscle soreness seems to be a very slight benefit to magnesium intake. Cramps, again, as I said, energy levels in general, and even exercise performance. It is an electrolyte, right? So there's huge benefits to magnesium. It does have a very mild decreasing effect uh, on blood pressure, which again, cardiovascular disease, pretty, pretty regular killer of humans. So that's a nice benefit. Um, so magnesium intake is probably a good idea to get enough magnesium. Now, again, ideal case scenario, you just eat green leafy vegetables. However, I know most people are not doing that. So it probably makes sense to include some magnesium in the diet. And what I would just do, or what I often recommend is, right, just get a magnesium powder, right? And when you have something like, I don't know, uh, an evening drink, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to go to bed soon, have some magnesium then. You could also do, I'm going to put some magnesium in the drink I'm taking in the gym, for example, right? All I'm trying to do with the magnesium intake is put it with something else so that you regularly take it, right? Like Gary, you said, oh, you struggle to remember to even take your uh, your drugs, your supplements, whatever, right? Whereas if I was like, look, every time you make a coffee, you're just going to put a scoop of magnesium in there, like a gram of magnesium. It's just not an actual gram of magnesium, but I mean like a gram of the magnesium powder, right? You forget about it. You don't even think about it, but it's just something that you casually do. You know, like someone might put like a, a spoonful of sugar in their, their tea or their coffee. You're just going to, okay, I'm just going to put some magnesium in there as well, Right. Now, maybe you wouldn't put it with coffee or tea purely because there's potential that it would be bound to the, the tannins and the different things in there. Um, but we're just trying to batch it with something else, right? You can take it in pill form. Some people prefer taking it in pill form. I think the powder is cheaper and relatively tasteless. Like you can get something like magnesium bisglycinate and then you also get benefits from the glycine. Um, so a very low dose batch it with something else or put it with another habit forget about it then you don't have to think about it i don't want to give a, a specific recommendation in terms of the exact dose because there's differing needs between differing populations and well, i suppose it makes sense here that i'll give this information if you take more you're probably just going to shit yourself right so that would generally be the titrating point you know if you're like oh, i want to try to get if there's more benefit from a uh, higher intake like basically get up to the point where you shit yourself <laughs> and then 
dial back from there right and i'm saying you shit yourself you're not going to just be like oh i just shit myself but i mean like you're going to have looser stools you know um potentially you won't be able to trust your farts right <laughs> so that's the kind of level where you're like okay i probably am eating or taking too much dial it back from there right um but i generally i'm like look just take a smaller dose and forget about it you know yeah and i think like like most i'd be pretty confident that most supplements that you'll take most magnesium supplements have reasonable enough dosing recommendations like normally when i look at them like yeah that's that's fair enough so just take what it says in the bottle it does vary a little bit you know depending on the type of magnesium like magnesium oxide is far more likely to give you those diarrheal effects than some of the other types of magnesium and so it it does depend a little bit on that but in general i think yeah i'm i'm in agreement that i think magnesium when you look at intakes in the population um and and especially given that our audience are you know heavy exercisers i do think there's reason enough there to suggest that magnesium is is probably going to be of some benefit um the you know some of the effects on, on blood pressure um can in some studies seems to be seem to be a little bit more pronounced um it'd be nice to actually have like solid controlled evidence on like stratified by different baseline magnesium levels it doesn't seem like there's much evidence really on that but um yeah overall i think i'm pretty pretty on the yay side for magnesium supplementation but i'm also on the yay side for just eating far more fruits and vegetables than people do at the moment so yes <laughs> that would be that would be the ideal case scenario here eat more fruits and vegetables happy days you're done right which brings us to the next one gary a greens powder you know and there's reds powders there's different powders but effectively what we're talking about here is some sort of nutrient powder like they've ground up some plant matter and made it into a powder yay or nay (laughs) greens powder is a like i think this is like the everything we said about the multivitamin um but like lower on the hierarchy in that like this is very much an insurance policy you know you want if you want to have a, a greens powder, like the multi, I probably put the multivitamin ahead of that just because I, the greens powders, I just don't trust a lot of them. I'm like, like this, if I'm taking five grams of this, I'm taking five grams of these ground greens, like what what level of nutrient intake am I actually getting? It just doesn't seem like a lot. So for me, um, I would use a greens powder if you know I was traveling. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get much greens in my diet. Psychologically, I think there could be a benefit here in that, let's say if you have a protein shake in the morning, it doesn't feel like a meal. If you have a protein shake and it has greens in it, it's like, oh, that feels like a complete meal now, you know? So I think sometimes if you're get, if you're getting someone to just have like a shake as a given meal, like it could be a, a reasonable one to add in. Um if you don't eat fruits and vegetables like a child, then maybe it might be of a benefit. Uh, in general, like I'm not reaching for a greens powder or recommending it very often. My advice to clients is generally, look, if you want to cover all your bases and you want to get some of the potential additives in this greens powder that might be a benefit, go for it. But definitely not a general recommendation. Yeah, like I'd be very similar in terms of my recommendations to clients and even with myself. I'm like, there's potential benefit there if you're having a meal and you're like oh there's I, there's no real way that i can add or i don't want to add any fruits or vegetables to this like people struggle a lot oftentimes at like breakfast they're just like 
I don't want to have any fruits or vegetables with this meal. Handy enough to have a greens shake at that meal, you know? Fantastic. Cool. You know, you're traveling, you're like, oh, like I don't have ease of access to fruit and vegetables here. Cool. I have a, a greens powder. Can be very handy. Using it instead of eating fruits and vegetables just across the day, across your diet, probably stupid. <laughs> right. There are potential benefits in terms of maybe there's only two or three fruits and vegetables that you really eat that you're just like, this is all I look, this is all I eat. But oh, I have this greens powder and it has 50 different fruits and vegetables in it. Okay, cool. Maybe there's some benefit there. But like you said, Gary, it's like a five gram dose. Like how much are you actually getting out of it? Now I know they're dried and dehydrated and whatever else. So it's slightly more potent, but still probably very low compared to just eating more fruits and vegetables, right? So first case, eat more fruits and vegetables. That's the best case scenario here. You can add a greens powder on top of that if you want, you know, but it's not necessary. If you're not eating enough fruits and vegetables, well, eat enough fruits and vegetables. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that's our recommendation. But if you really struggle with that and you can't do it or you're traveling or there's some, some reason, maybe this meal particularly, you're like, I wish I could get more fruits and vegetables at this specific meal. A greens powder. Cool. I have no issue with that. I'm not like, there's, there's probably very, very little negative associated with that. Now, a lot of people sell specific greens powders and they sponsor a lot of podcasts. I'm not going to name names. Um, but like there's, it, it seems that every single person that recommends it just doesn't eat vegetables, doesn't eat fruits and vegetables across their day. So there's no actual magical benefit to it other than getting your fruit and vegetable intake up a little bit higher. <laughs> right. And they'll go on, Oh, it has these ingredients and it has this specific thing or whatever. The doses are so fucking piss poor. Like <laughs> it's, it's actually reckless. Um, but anyway, we'll move on. Greens powder, Gary, yay or nay? I, I lean in the direction of nay on this one, other than those conditions that we mentioned. Fantastic. Fiber supplement, Gary, related to this. Mm. Like, oh, look, fruits and vegetables can't get enough. You know, I just, I just can't fit enough in my diet. I don't like them. I won't eat them, etc. I've been taking a greens powder but maybe your fiber intake isn't quite high enough. You know, you're like, now you're like, oh, I'm not eating the fruits and veg, which is where the fiber comes from in the diet. I got some of the nutrients from a greens powder, but none of the fiber. Do I just add a fiber supplement? Do I just have a greens powder and a fiber supplement? Are we all good now? Yeah, I think fiber supplements actually a reasonable enough recommendation because there can actually be clear indications for you know, okay, this is actually likely to have a genuine benefit for you. Like if someone has, you know, high cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol, then there is actually evidence to show that taking a fiber supplement can actually reduce that. So um, in this case, you know, I'm a bit more on the A side of, of fiber supplementation. Something like psyllium husk can be very easy to, you know, add to protein shakes or even add into your porridge and things like that. Obviously, it all comes back to the diet. I'd, I'd always tell people to start like, trying to make some simple changes to, to their diet. For example, if you're having, you know, a bowl of porridge in the morning, could you get some um, bran fiber, uh, wheat fiber that you just uh, add in there, or wheat bran, I should say, or oat bran that you add in to try to bump up the fiber content of that meal. If you're having stir fries, could you add in some black beans or red kidney beans or chickpeas, etc.? All these little things that we can do to increase fiber intake independent of like just fruits and vegetables. 
I always start there. But I do think that uh, if someone is consistently below the level of fiber that we generally recommend, which would be somewhere between 10, and 15, 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories consumed, and then I think a fiber supplement is pretty reasonable. It's it's not that expensive and it's not like you need massive doses. So uh, I think it's reasonable enough. Yeah, and there also does seem to be a, well, relatively a dose response curve with this in terms of like, even if you're getting enough, let's say you're going, I'm eating 3000 calories, and I'm doing 15 grams per thousand calories. So I'm on 45 grams of fiber per day, you know, like there seems to be a, still a benefit for adding in five extra grams from zillion husk, you know, like, is it the same magnitude of benefit if you were eating five grams full stop before, and then you added on top of that, you added in five grams of psyllium husk. No, the magnitude is not <laughs> the same obviously the person that has very low intakes is going to benefit from that way more but there does those still seem to be a benefit even if you have relatively good fiber intakes right um so i i would i'd be in yay i'd be like yeah fiber supplement good to go take five grams of psyllium husk per day you're probably going to only going to see benefits to your digestion uh your ease of uh defecation we'll say um and your blood lipids right i mean you're probably only going to see benefit now there are certain segments of the population where certain fibers or quantities of fiber it's not going to be good for them if you have ibs for example right and it's just non-descript yeah non-descript ibs you're like i don't really know what the cause is like adding in some random fiber supplements probably not not going to be uh a good time for you you're probably going to feel like crap <laughs> right um but at the same time it could also be a benefit right and unfortunately i have no way of knowing for you as an individual <laughs> right uh, this is why you talk to your doctor um but yeah yeah or nay fiber supplements uh well, let's go yeah I, I would lean yay again diet first if we can but even if you have a good diet I still think there's potential benefit there. But again, that's my philosophy here with this stuff. I'm like, oh, there's potential benefit. Happy days, right? Next one, Gary, creatine. Creatine. We won't we won't go too deep on creatine because we actually are going to come back to it in a lot more detail in, in one of the subsequent episodes. But from a health perspective, uh, creatine is, is probably something that is worth taking. Somewhere, you know, five grams per day is... Um, reasonable reasonable enough there have been some recent studies kind of trying to you know stratify this by body weight which would be like i think it's 0.1 gram per kilogram of body weight which would be like eight grams for me but you know five, five grams per day is a reasonable enough starting point um or three to five grams is what a lot of people will say depends on your diet as well like you know do you eat much red meat do you eat much animal products in general are you getting creatine in the diet um, if you're on a purely vegan diet, probably not getting much creatine at all. So it's a bit more important to supplement. But we do see in general that there are, you know, wide-ranging benefits beyond just the performance and muscle building effects people talk about. In particular, one of the things that seems to be of importance is for cognitive health. So if you're trying to stave off cognitive decline, you're trying to maintain the brain at a high level of function. Um, maybe even protect against concussion and these types of things. Seems like creatine is quite promising in all of these areas. So it's a again a pretty cheap supplement. I 
do believe it's increased in price recently and um, since the pandemic. Someone asked me about that in my Q&A the other day and I didn't actually get around to looking into it. They asked why the price has gone up so much. But like for me, I buy like the kilo bags, which which I genuinely had for just so long. I've bought it since, I don't know, 2020, I'd say 2021. Um, but so yeah, it might've gone up a little bit, but if you buy like big bags of creatine, it's so cost effective. You know, if you, if you remember to take five grams every single day and you buy a kilo bag, you're going to have that for 200 days. I don't remember to take it every single day. So I've had it for longer than 200 days, but uh, it's, it's pretty cost effective. Yay for creatine. Yeah, hundred percent. This is why we put it in with the general health supplements. Like it seems to have just good general all round benefits for a variety of things. <clears throat> While we often just think of it in terms of its performance boosting effects and whatever, I would, I would recommend my granny take uh, <laughs> creatine. You know, it seems to be just beneficial for a variety of things. So I'm putting this as a firm yay. Take about five grams per day. Cool. Don't think about it. Just add it to whatever, right? Um, the final one, Gary. I know you love these ones. Probiotics. Probiotics. Massive yay for everyone. No. Um, probiotics, probably a, a lot of hype here. I think this area in general, gut health, the microbiome, etc. you should maintain a high level of skepticism here because this is an area where you can make lots of faulty causal inferences because when you look at the microbiome, there's massive diversity in terms of the different, you know, bacterial strains, also, you know, other microorganisms, not just bacteria. And we don't, really know that much in the grand scheme of things we don't know that much about how these different bacteria confer health or detract from health how they interact with each other you know what what might the benefit of having more of one less of another really be at this point in time it seems like we have a general idea that having more of this is probably good i mean more of this is probably bad and the, the, th the problem is we often end up in a position where looking at this, these bacteria, we're, we're saying, okay, this bacterial population is, it's reflective of the person's lifestyle up to now. So obviously you're going to see poor health outcomes in that individual, but is it just their lifestyle or what contribution is actually coming from their current microbial state in their gut? So th this is a, a really messy area. That's not to say there's not like valuable outcomes. There are some cases when it comes to taking probiotics that there actually are genuine uses like traveler's diarrhea, I think is probably one of the best examples that there can be specific probiotics that you take that might be a benefit here. But in general, I think it's hard to really say there's going to be any meaningful benefit here. Um, I think there's some evidence in IBS, I believe, for certain probiotics but this definitely isn't one that I'm leaning in the direction of yay on as a general rule. Many years ago, I used to think, oh, yeah, sure, just take probiotics, enrich your gut. But we just don't have that much long-term evidence to really even be able to say what it means to enrich your gut. Like, what what does that actually mean? Um, we don't really know. Yeah, and like realistically, like you would have to take such high doses to actually see benefits and again then it becomes this what are you actually trying to do like it's an argument of what are you actually trying to do you're taking fucking trillions upon trillions 
of uh, bacteria to hopefully influence your gut to slightly change its population. When in reality, we probably actually just want to change our diet and lifestyle habits to then influence our gut bacteria populations. You know, like, what are you feeding this gut bacteria? Like, why do you have this negative population to begin with? Now, obviously, look, that's, it's not just solely your lifestyle and diet and whatever, like, again, early life exposures, you fucking uh, whatever, right? Um, But we probably want to eat a certain type of diet if we want to have a good, healthy microbiome. And that good, healthy diet is generally full of fruits and vegetables and relatively high in fiber. (laughs) That's what we want to do, right? Which is just follow our general food health recommendations and then you don't need to think about probiotics. Now, there are potential benefits, like you said, certain strains in certain populations or for certain conditions, 100%. And you can look into the research and go, well, I have this condition. Are there specific strains of probiotics that are potentially beneficial? And you might find certain strains, right? But this uh, approach that people often have of, here's just a blanket probiotic. This has 5 billion you know, live units or whatever they're they're called, right? It's probably not all that effective. Is it all that harmful? Probably not, you know? But even though I have this perspective of, oh, there's potential benefit there, um, in, in general with supplements, I'm like, oh, there's maybe a 0.5% benefit to this. I'm going to take it. With probiotics, I don't really see there being a huge benefit for the average person, you know? Now, does that mean that I discount the research on like the different effects of like specific bacteria or different microbiome generalities? No, but I just don't think there's enough evidence to support the use of specific, you know, general probiotics for influencing health in general, or at least I don't believe that over just eating a good diet, influencing your microbiome positively you know so my recommendation here is just eat a good healthy diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and your microbiome will probably be a good it'll probably reflect a good health or good healthy individual you know um, that's my recommendation so i suppose you would say that's a, a nay on the probiotics but i'm also willing to change my mind on that if future research comes out because again I think there is potential benefit there, but we just don't know enough yet. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that um, I think it's it's a nay from a position of like open to changing my mind, but you have to just at this point say we just don't have that great evidence to demonstrate long term effects here. And I think the other problem is that like you know if they were if it was like a a totally inert case where if I take these probiotics, taking these bacterial strains, let's say and I don't need them, I just like pee them out. Okay, fair enough, you know, you're just wasting your money. But like, there's there's a non-zero uh, risk of there being some potential harm as well. Like you're, you're, you are changing the life environment um, within your gut and therefore impacting your overall physiology. And in the absence of clear long-term evidence of what that actually means, like I just wouldn't be leaning in that direction, especially when they're expensive as well. Like as in, if you're going to go for a, a so-called high quality one where you're actually getting very high doses of strains that are generally supposed to be healthful 
like they're actually they're pretty expensive so i would for now say nay but at the same time not discounting the really interesting area of research and probable future outcomes that are that I, I i would be hopeful for like i do think in future that you know there will be better evidence for certain bacterial strains in certain people and better ways of characterizing who might be of benefit because at the moment we don't really have great ways of, of knowing that so and uh, nay but not but but interested i would say yeah i actually want to just add to my nay and say that in people that take antibiotics maybe there's an increased yay but i'm still willing to say that there's a nay for that because well again we might go oh you've taken antibiotics you've been on like a dose of antibiotics for whatever two weeks three weeks whatever it is right and you're going okay well that's killed off a lot of the potential beneficial bacteria in my gut i'm going to take a probiotic and repopulate my gut with potentially beneficial uh bacteria but the key word there is potentially beneficial bacteria we don't know <laughs> so theoretically hypothetically i would be like yeah like there's probably benefit from taking a probiotic after you've taken a, and after you've taken an antibiotic right but do we have really conclusive research on that for you as an individual no yeah and i think i think that's that's another area where there is actually controversy in the research because some evidence suggests that, you know, that actually could be a good idea, you know, taking probiotics after antibiotic therapy. Other evidence suggests that you'd be better off not doing that. The problem is saying antibiotic is very vague. What antibiotic? What bacteria was it targeting? Was it gram negative? Was it gram positive? Like what? anaerobic aerobic what 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 specific antibiotic what did it get rid of and then are we going to be specific with uh probiotic and replacing that so it's it's again like i would i would agree with the caveat but just appreciate that when we say antibiotic and probiotic there's so much beneath those labels that we're not being as targeted as as we as we think we are because that sounds like a really like precise case it's like oh antibiotic i've Kill my gut bacteria, build them back up. But what that looks like in practice is, is a lot more messy. So, yeah. Anyway, look, there are general supplements, right? So they're the general ones that we see people recommend regularly. We see potential benefit as we've gone through all of the different ones. Um, we see potential benefit for the average person. And if you aren't doing these general ones or you're like, oh, like, my diet is generally good. You probably don't need to listen to the rest of the episodes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I've, I mean that genuinely because uh, this is the, the baseline here. These are the ones that are like, these are the, the first line of defense. These are the things that you should shore up or think about first before you think about, Oh, I'm going to buy these like really niche specific muscle building supplements or these really niche specific like performance enhancing supplements or cognitive enhancing supplements or xyz right like if the organism i.e you is not healthy you're not looking after the foundational things all the rest of the stuff probably doesn't matter right like yeah you might get some benefit from having i don't know fucking 400 milligrams of caffeine before your workout but it's kind of transient because your organism is not healthy. 
you know it's like it doesn't really matter you're probably not going to get the results that you want because you don't eat properly <laughs> right um uh, so anyway this is the baseline again you've seen our yay and nays or you rather you've heard our yay and nays obviously again lots of nuance lots of caveats here and that will continue throughout the series um but that's our starting point check and on that note that's everything for this episode if you would like more specific guidance on your training nutrition or otherwise we do have coaching spaces available so you can find information about that in the description box below very much relevant to this um series that we're doing is obviously nutrition science nutrition information etc and if you're interested in leveling up we do have a nutrition certification that you can do where you'll get a lot more detail on all things nutrition, enabling you to coach nutrition, enabling you to have a better grasp of how it is that you put the knowledge into practice. So if you're interested in that, you can find information about that below. We do also have an email newsletter where we send out exclusive content each week. So subscribe to that. Similar with our social media, we put out a lot of free content on social media. Make sure you're following us. And if you're enjoying the podcast and you're looking forward to the series, Please do share it with a friend, leave a rating and review, share it on your Instagram story, etc. And thank you always for your support. Enjoy.